Welcome to Catholic Economics. I'm your host, Levi Russell, and this is Essential Reading. All right, so today I'm going to be reading a brief paper by Rupert J. Ederer, who is, was an economist and was the translator of uh, much of Heinrich Pesch's work uh, into English. And so I want to uh, provide this uh, short piece because it's, it's it kind of gives a really succinct answer to the question, you know, why can't why can't the church embrace economic liberalism? Why can't Catholics uh, embrace economic liberalism? So I'm just going to jump right into it here. The Pope's Treasure and Neoliberalism by Rupert J. Ederer, Professor Emeritus, Buffalo State College. This article traces how the various papal encyclicals since Ram Novarum have made clear that economic liberalism cannot be embraced by the church, how the various central principles of Catholic social teaching always must be maintained as against the imperatives of an uninhibited market. It traces the rise of neoliberal economics and explains how it displays the same flaws as the older economic liberalism and how Pope John Paul II's 1999 remarks in Mexico City show an awareness of that fact. Pope John Paul II ignoring his age and infirmities, completed a difficult journey to the North American continent during the January of 1999. As anyone who has read his most recent encyclical, Fide Satratio, can attest, his mind is as keen as ever. So is the papal sense of humor. When the bishops in Mexico City kept importuning him to sign what seemed like an unending number of copies of his post-synodal apostolic exhortation, Ecclesia in America, he finally protested that his pen was running out of ink. That document, along with his visit to Mexico and to St. Louis, Missouri, put the finishing touches on the Senate of Bishops from this hemisphere, held in Rome in November through December of 1997. Ecclesia in America is addressed to the bishops, but also for priests and deacons, men and women religious, and all the lay faithful on the encounter with the living Jesus Christ, the way to conversion, communion, and solidarity in America. Needless to say, that includes Catholic social scientists, and specifically the Society of Catholic Social Scientists. Especially relevant for them is the fifth chapter entitled, The Path to Solidarity. Early in this chapter, Pope John Paul II presented his favorite motif, solidarity, as the decisive virtue for dealing with and eventually resolving the serious social problems facing both the richer and the poorer countries of our hemisphere. Recall that it was this pontiff who, in Solicitudo Rei Socialis, declared solidarity to be a Christian virtue. And in Centesimus Anos, he informed us that solidarity is identical with social charity, which Pius XI presented in Quadragesimo Anno, as the twin virtue to social justice. These virtues have the common good, not the good of any specific individual as their object. Overall, the Pope was now proposing the Church's social doctrine as a starting point in the search for practical solutions to the grave social problems which, with different characteristics, are present throughout America. Quoting one of the propositions of the Synodal Decree, he made this appeal. It is therefore important that in America 
the agents of evangelization, bishops, priests, teachers, pastoral workers, etc., make their make their own this treasure, which is the church's social teaching, and inspired by it, become capable of interpreting the present situation and determine the actions to take. Treasure indeed, but one is entitled to ask how much of it remains, perhaps still a buried treasure even now, more than a century after Leo XIII began shaping a Catholic social doctrine for modern society. In this age of instantaneous communication and information glut, unfortunately papal encyclicals too are scanned quickly, commented on often superficially and even critically, and then they are put aside with other ephemeral materials, like last week's news magazines. Worse still, given particular cultural proclivities, the Church's teachings, addressing what is wrong with modern society and what is to be done, are sometimes twisted to suit entrenched interests, or they are even rejected outright if they do not corroborate those. By and large, however, this treasure which Pope John spoke of in Ecclesia in America remains, as stated on a promotional leaflet by the Society of Catholic Social Scientists, one of the best-kept secrets in America. With regard to differing cultural reactions to papal social teachings, it is intriguing how these have been handled, and one has to say sometimes perverted, respectively, in the Anglo and Latin sectors of our hemisphere. In Latin America, with some spillover elsewhere, liberation theology proved to be a disastrous distraction from the treasure which Pope John Paul II mentions in his apostolic exhortation. In an area where it enjoys, at least nominally, the allegiance of the vast majority of the population, energies and zeal that could have gone toward applying the principles contained in the social teachings of the church were diverted to this thinly disguised Marxian program. Basically, well-meaning clerics and theologians tried to baptize Marxism without first exercising it. Forceful revolution replaced conversion, and class hatred edged out the social virtues, like solidarity as vehicles for social reform. Now that the socialist thing has recorded with, has receded with the dramatic dissolution of the Soviet communist empire, hopefully liberation theology too has passed the peak of its fascination. Probably the dismal performance of the Cuban socialist state also serves to diminish among the Latin peoples any remaining enthusiasm for Marxism. Indeed, the recent spectacle of a seemingly contrite Fidel Castro with John Paul II in Cuba was somehow reminiscent of the televised portrayal of a quaking Polish general standing before his pope in Warsaw. That replay of Henriette Canossa occurred just before the end of communist domination in Poland, and subsequently throughout Eastern Europe and in the Soviet heartland itself. In any case, liberation theology was a tragic distraction which introduced widespread collective amnesia with regard to the treasure which Pope John Paul was referring in his apostolic exhortation. Consequently, the church was forced to issue several warnings against liberation theology to the faithful who might be gullible and to those clerics and theologians who might be inclined to deceive them. Corruptio optimi pessima. But what of those faithful who were not impressed or swayed by liberation theology, especially in the Anglo sectors of America? They include the more opulent, who understandably are unlikely to be fascinated by socialistic schemes, the deceiver never rests. For them, seduction stemmed from an opposite direction. Number the United States among the many countries of America where Pope John Paul II warned in Ecclesia in America that a system known as neoliberalism prevails. He described that as based on a purely economic conception of man, and he indicated that this system considers profit and the law of the market as its only parameters, to the detriment of the dignity of and respect due to individuals and peoples. 
In the United States, this venture into neoliberalism seems to have originated when certain politicians began peddling the facile slogan that government is the problem. This is a nonpartisan statement. Both Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan used the scary specter of big government to win votes. If anarchists preached that gospel, no one would have been surprised and few would have been seduced. The main problem underlying the prevailing economic disorder, then as now, was not the government, but greed. In the specific historical context that we are dealing with here, big government encroached into economic affairs in the first place because greed raged unchained. Greed may, in fact, be viewed as the perennial problem, the capital sin, in what we call capitalistic society. If there are any doubters, they should consider the revealing fact that their church's social teaching appears in the Catechism of the Catholic Church under the Seventh Commandment. A brief historical reflection may be useful at this point to help explain the recent venture into neoliberalism in the United States. Perhaps many of the protagonists of neoliberalism are too young to remember that the economic disaster of the 1930s stemmed in the final analysis from our last great venture into economic liberalism during the 1920s. That was, incidentally, a period disturbingly similar to what is going on now. Exaggerated stock market activity, high profits, a rash of mergers, distress on our farms, and stagnant wages along with general absence of vigorous labor unionism. The economic collapse and the Great Depression which followed turned out to be the worst economic crisis in our history. State and local governments, let alone private charitable enterprises, soon exhausted their capacities to help the victims. As a consequence, the federal government did indeed grow large during the period, which came to be known as the New Deal. It grew even larger during our country's involvement in World War II. The Roosevelt administration introduced direct federal government intervention in the economy at a level unprecedented in our history. Meanwhile, in academia, economic thinking tried to reflect the shifting fortunes in the economy. The economics which prevailed when the collapse occurred was designated as neoclassical, since it represented an updated, more sophisticated version of Adam Smith's original classical economic liberalism. The economic system was seen as operating like a mechanism. If markets for products, labor, and capital were allowed to function freely without interference by governments or labor unions, in Smith's time, guilds were the bete noir. Then prices, wages, and interest rates would seek their own natural level via the price mechanism. And since the results that is, the prices of products, labor, and capital were natural, they were assumed to be automatically fair or just. Given such naturalness, the economy overall would arrive at a full employment equilibrium. In the real world, something went radically wrong on the way to this economic paradise. We ended up with one-fourth of our workers more or less chronically unemployed, and we lost one-third of our banks along with their deposits, which in our fractional reserve system make up the bulk of our money supply. These banks were not lost to mergers, but to failures. That is when the federal government sought to come to the rescue with a plethora of agencies and commissions intended to nurture recovery at all levels and in all sectors of the economy. Not uncharacteristically, academia shifted before long from that established neoclassical position to a new economics. A British economist, John Maynard Keynes, proposed the grim prospect that under conditions of mature capitalism, the hoped-for equilibrium is likely to occur at a chronic underemployment level. That occurs unless governments assume a more active role in economic life to stimulate investment in particular and the income which it generates. Since Keynes purported to address chiefly his fellow economists, 
He retained due deference to the prevailing mechanistic nomenclature and jargon, not without adding a good deal of his own. He premised his entire approach on the invalidity of the so-called law of markets, which assured, as he put it, that, that the aggregate demand price of output as a whole is equal to its aggregate supply for all volumes of output. This law was first formulated by an early 19th century French economist, J.B. Say. It resurfaced in the new liberalism as supply-side economics. Keynes remarked that Say's law was tantamount to saying that there is no obstacle to full employment. Since painful reality by now clearly indicated otherwise, he proceeded on the assumption that there was something basically wrong with the old neoclassical premises. By abandoning them and substituting his own, he hoped to save capitalism, while announcing, and perhaps hastening, the death of laissez-faire, i.e., economic liberalism. His proposals at the practical level included having the government bolster inadequate private investment with public investment, a process which came to be referred to as pump priming. He also urged moderate income redistribution via the tax mechanism, specifically income taxes. The New Deal, of course, installed both of these proposals into its program. There is some discussion among economists until today whether that was propter hoc or simply post hoc. In in retrospect, the predominant feeling among economists and historians is that the New Deal effort, radical as it was for its time, did not succeed in ending the Great Depression. Unemployment still stood at over 14% in 1940. Full recovery was finally accomplished by our country's involvement in World War II. The war brought about the total mobilization of the entire economy in matters ranging from materials allocation to price and wage controls. The free market mechanism was set aside to an unprecedented extent, putting in an appearance only subversively at times in what was called the black market. Deficit spending on a massive scale was a given, and progressive income taxes were levied at unprecedented high rates. Nor were there too many objectors at the time, ostensibly because of the high level of patriotic motivation. Full employment did, in fact, return. Moreover, all, including now, also the poorer classes, earned respectable incomes, at the same time that businesses, by and large, were earning handsome profits. Given that some 10 million young men who would otherwise have been candidates for the workforce were drafted into the military services, it is not surprising that there were more jobs and applicants than applicants. The situation persisted for a time after the war when people sought to fill pent-up wants which could not be satisfied during the several years when all production was directed to wartime needs. Also, the high progressive income tax rates, which remained in effect basically until the Kennedy administration, continued to serve as a massive income redistribution engine. Thus, the little people who had been gradually frozen out of the economic process during the 1920s and who were devastated during the 1930s had money in their pockets. As Keynes had suggested in something he called the consumption function, people at the lower income levels tend to spend a greater percentage of their paychecks for consumption. In any case, we were left with a vastly enlarged government presence in the economic life of our nation. Even after New Deal and wartime offices, commissions and agencies were dismantled. Bureaucratic tendencies, and what is perhaps even more important, the bureaucratic mentality, were stubborn survivors. What is more, big government leaves behind a certain innervating effect among people who have come to look to it for solutions, especially given the lingering memories of the recent economic catastrophe. But the principle of subsidiarity will not be mocked. A proliferation of government agencies to assure full employment is not the way a healthy economy is supposed to operate, nor are draconian tax measures 
which may be justified during extreme emergencies, the best way to bring about any desired change in the income distribution pattern. Thus, before long, periods of unemployment above what economists were calling a normal level began to reoccur with disturbing regularity. For example, 1949, 1958, 1961. Apparently, we were on a wrong course, and that cut off with us long after the New Deal agencies and the ubiquitous government wartime controls had been dismantled. A predecessor of Pope John Paul II had explicitly proposed subsidiarity, along with companion principles for reconstructing the social order in 1931, when the economic catastrophe first got underway. A return to unregulated free markets, that is, neoliberalism, was not among those. In Quadragesimo Anno, Pius XI warned that free competition cannot be an adequate controlling principle in economic affairs, even as he warns against free reign given to dangerous individualistic ideals. It was at that point in the church's history that he added significant teachings to the treasure to which Pope John Paul II referred. They included the principles of social justice and social charity, solidarity, as the ultimate regulating principles in economic life, and also the concept of functional, also vocational groups, to assist in the regulating process. These were, in addition to a significant further development of the just wage doctrine, first proposed in its modern form by Leo XIII and Rerum Novarum, and dramatically enhanced later by Pope John Paul II. The payment of just wage throughout the economy was, re- was presented as the proper approach, in full accord with the subsidiarity principle, for promoting equitable income distribution. And as Leo XIII had already indicated, Such a just family wage could not be expected to result automatically from free agreements between workers and their employees. The treasure was further increased, and the follies of economic liberalism were scored by subsequent popes. Pius XII commenced the frequent use of the term solidarity in the relevant sense in many discourses and messages throughout his long pontificate, 1939-1958. through He too warned about a too facile reliance on free market principles, in an address to Catholic International Congress for Social Study on June 3, 1950, he indicated that production must be adjusted to consumption on the basis of human needs and human dignity. This was to be accomplished not from the theory of laws of the market, a purely positivistic byproduct of the neo-Kantian criticism, nor in the mere formula, every bit as artificial, of full employment. In other words, neither the neoliberal economics of the neoclassical school nor the Keynesian system which sought to discredit and replace it were seen by this brilliant pontiff as acceptable solutions to festering economic disorder. Pius XII relied heavily on Gustav Gunlach, S.J., for advice on economic matters. The Jesuit was a colleague and protege of Heinrich Pesch, S.J., which explains, among other things, the production is for human needs, not primarily for profit approach. It also explains the increasing injection of the Peschian concept, solidarity, throughout Pius XII's teaching on economic matters. John XXIII also was not willing to simply rely on market activity. It was this pope from humble rural origins who urged special considerations for farmers. They included price protection and insurance programs for people whose occupation is so especially vulnerable and at the same time so vital for the national economic well-being. Mater et Magistra 135-137 through what is more, he ventured a teaching on taxes not found previously in social encyclicals. Few self-respecting neoliberals would welcome his proposal. As regards, quote, as regards taxation, assessment according to ability to pay is fundamental to a just and equitable system. 
unquote. Moderat Magistra 132. For his efforts, John Twenty-Third earned the scorn of the, quote, conservative, unquote, National Review, where Moderat Magistra was, was characterized editorially as a venture in trivialities. Pope, John, Pope Paul VI suffered a similar fate at the hands of Wall Street Journal writers, writers who accused him of promoting warmed-over Marxism in Populorum Progressio. In that 1967 encyclical, he warned about liberal capitalism as a system which considers profit as the key motive for economic progress, competition as the supreme law of economics, and private ownership of the means of production as an absolute right that has no limits and carries no corresponding social obligations. Few would argue that the ongoing wave of downsizing, merging, and laying off thousands to enlarge profit margins reflects a sensitive awareness to social obligations. Nor would workers and industrialists who are hard-pressed by free competition with cheap labor be likely to disagree with what Paul VI had to say about liberalism as the rule for commercial exchange. He said that the rule of free trade, taken by itself, is no longer able to govern international relations, while admitting its advantages among nations where there are not any excessive inequalities of economic power. The Pope indicated that when economic conditions differ too widely from country to country, prices which are freely set in the market can produce unfair results. For his admonitions in Humanae Vitae about what the contraceptive mentality would do to marriage and family life, Pope Paul VI is now hailed belatedly for his prophetic vision. Largely forgotten is an explicit early warning about neoliberalism in the economic order. In his apostolic exhortation, Octogesima Adveniens, commemorating the 80th anniversary of Rerum Novarum, we find, on another side, we are witnessing a renewal of the liberal ideology. He asked, Do not Christians who take this path tend to idealize liberalism in their turn, making it a proclamation in favor of freedom? As to their motivation, they would like a new model, more adapted to present-day conditions, while easily forgetting that at the very root of philosophical liberalism is an erroneous affirmation of the autonomy of the individual in his activity, his motivation, and the exercise of his liberty. That proceeded by 28 years, the Monitum in Mexico City in 1999, where Pope John Paul II was once again calling attention to the threat to social order posed by neoliberalism. He pointed out there... At times, this system has become the ideological justification for certain attitudes and behavior in the social and political spheres, leading to the neglect of the weaker members of society. Indeed, the poor are becoming ever more numerous, victims of specific policies and structures which are often unjust. Catholic social scientists belong in the front ranks among those who recognize the brilliant insights of Pope Paul VI about the economic order as well as about human life. Notwithstanding the booming economy, which is being widely hailed by our informational media at present, the fact is that the ongoing low unemployment levels present present a false picture. Much of the present high level of employment reflects the widespread need for two wage earners per family in order to bring home an adequate income to meet basic family needs. That is due once again to the equally widespread abandonment of the wage level to simply market activity. Inherent here is an especially vicious circle. First, mothers are enticed out of the home into the workforce, whether for personal fulfillment or emancipation. Then, inasmuch as the free market economy is one which leaves wage determination to the so-called law of demand and supply, wage levels are 
subsequently depressed by the increased supply of female workers. Eventually, in order to supplement the now also depressed wages of their husbands, wives, including mothers, have little choice but to remain in the labor market or to enter it if they are not there. The resultant Soviet-style daycare culture is already having devastating effects on family life. Regrettably, we now find ourselves confronting the same disordered condition of labor which Leo XIII faced a century ago, and for the same reason, economic liberalism. At the same time, our flawed, indiscriminate free trade policy has led to the widespread export of what used to be high-paying jobs to foreign countries, some of which use what is literally slave labor. We are left with a surfeit of notoriously low-paid so-called service jobs because, as a practical matter, these cannot be filled by Asian or Latin American workers. What is more, in our vaunted global economy, when major players like Russia, Brazil, and Japan are on their knees economically speaking, no one should realistically expect that our own booming economy can remain seriously unaffected for long. The volatile surging stock market is a deceptive indicator, as it was prior to 1929. Its inflated conditions should fool no one. In the final analysis, it represents a kind of detached fool's world, which takes on a life of its own, while becoming increasingly detached from the real bricks-and-mortar economy where serious production takes place. Given now this century-old treasure of the Catholic Church's social teaching, it would seem that the time has certainly come to take seriously the latest admonitions in Ecclesia in America by Pope John Paul II. At the threshold of the new millennium, and in what came to be known as the New World, Catholic social scientists in particular should be among the first to recognize that neoliberalism is rooted deeply in the 18th century and in the seriously flawed deistic naturalism of the Enlightenment. They should turn instead, instead to the treasure which Pope John Paul II drew to our attention once again in Mexico City on the threshold of the new millennium. Indeed, there was a challenging, very specific proposal to which the Society of Catholic Social Scientists might, it, might devote its attention. To this end, it would be very useful to have a compendium or approved synthesis of Catholic social doctrine, including a catechism which could show the connection between it and the new evangelization. The part which the Catechism of the Catholic Church devotes to this material in its treatment of the Seventh Commandment of the Decalogue could serve as the starting point for such a catechism of Catholic social doctrine. Our young society would seem to be uniquely suited for this task, given its impressive roster of competent social scientists, which cuts across and embraces the various disciplines. The treasure of which Pope John Paul II speaks in Ecclesia in America includes teachings addressed not only to the economic order, but also to the political order and the family on which all of society ultimately rests. The Society of Catholic Social Scientists numbers among its ranks competent experts in all of these areas of social science, and many of them are already well-versed in their church's social teachings. Catholic Social Science Review. Uh, that, that's the publication that this came from. I don't have the year on here on this on this particular document, so I'm not exactly sure uh, what year it was published, but I'm guessing relatively soon after 1999. Okay, so that's uh, today's episode. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support the show, I have Patreon and Subscribestar links in the show notes, and there's also a link uh, to contribute via Anchor. But uh, most of all, just please share the show. I really do appreciate all of you uh, having some interest in this um, in, in, in economics from a Catholic perspective. Mm-hmm.